0: Welcome to Dreammakers, candid conversations with women that will change the way that you see success, purpose, and what it takes to bridge the two. I am Neha Sampat, a three-time tech founder and CEO with a focus on companies that are places to dream big, build up and be a good human. I'm CEO of Content Stack and also a certified sommelier. So yes, we drink wine here on this podcast. I'm joined by Wit Valk, the Managing Director of VC firm Insight Partners, who happens to be an investor in content stack. She has 30 years of experience as a software executive, advisor, investor, and board member. Today, we're going to talk about leading through change, advice for startups trying to scale, and paying it forward. Let's get started. Welcome, Wit. Thanks so much, Neha. It's so much fun to be here with you. And I'm so it excited is- we get joined. I know. I love it. And I wanted to pick something really special for this episode because I know Wit loves really good wine. And I've had the opportunity to drink good wine with her in the past. We had an event at your house, I think, like a few years ago in San Francisco. And Wit also has food as a side passion and a hobby. And you've even written a food blog. And before you joined the call, I was lurking on your Instagram and looking at photos of your food that you posted. How did you get into cooking? Tell us a little bit about that. I think it
1: started with actually a lot of exposure to really interesting global foods when I was young, because my mom's parents, my grandparents lived in Africa and Indonesia for 13 years, and came back to the US when I was, I think, maybe six, something like that, and came back with an Indonesian chef. My mom and her brother lived all over the world, along with my grandparents. So I don't know, I got exposure to a lot of like weird flavors and awesome spicy dishes and whatever, when I was very young. And then my mom, my uncle, and my grandfather were all excellent cooks. So when you grow up eating really great food and get exposed to a lot of things, you want to keep eating great food and get exposed to more things. So I started cooking for myself and found that it's a total passion. It's a creative outlet. It's a, it's relaxing for me. It's a lot of fun.
0: You talked about how it actually is something that brings joy to the people around you, which is how I feel about wine and being able to share good wine with people. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I think they're very similar. I mean, the idea being that you get a reaction from somebody that you care about, who's excited about sharing flavors with you, whether it be in a glass or on a plate. And there's something very gratifying about that. I mean, cooking for myself is fine, but it's a whole lot more fun if I'm cooking for people who really enjoy it and I get to see and be part of their reaction. So I think it's very similar to what you you think about wine.
0: Absolutely. I love it. Okay, so today we are drinking a 2016 Louis Latour Nuit Saint-Georges. It's a Pinot Noir from Burgundy, France. And I really love this producer, one of the most respected producers of the region, very well known, but one of the things that really stands out is that this producer is a big proponent of sustainable, responsible agriculture and has spent 15 years promoting that. So that makes it a little bit extra special to me. And we can start by just taking a quick glance at the color. Almost all wines from this region are such a beautiful, like garnet, ruby, red. Yeah. Pinos from the U.S. or Oregon tend to be a bit lighter in color. Really, they've got that like garnet that stands out.
1: Yeah, a little bit of those earthy tones. And they come through in the mouth too. Just great acidity and really good fruit. And some nice kind of, I don't know, backbone of like earth. Some earth tones, just really delicious.
0: Definitely. Earth tones, some like ripe red berry, maybe a little bit of blackcurrant. A little bit of like a marzipan almost, like an almond paste. Mmm, I did get the almond. I like that. Yeah, this is great. We'll keep revisiting it, but it's a nice one. It's got really mellow tannins. And like you said, like a beautiful acidity, like super well-balanced. Fun wine. (laughs) Okay. Let's switch gears, talk about your career path a little bit. So you started your career engineering at Oracle and eventually ended up becoming a COO. And this has kind of been a winding road for you. Did you have a career plan all along or did you kind of like shift as things changed and came your way? Tell us about that.
1: I didn't have any real career plan. And and frankly, I can tell you at almost every point on the way, I didn't really plan on what was next, which sounds funny, but it's actually very liberating. And it's something I tell to people in their careers quite often because I feel like today's youth, young graduates are under a lot of pressure to know exactly what they want to do and the path they're going to get there and plan your step A, B, C, D and I feel like you can plan all you want, but that's not really how it happens. We all know this. And so um, I'll tell you a very short version of kind of how that unfolded. But yeah, I started in uh, at Oracle back in the late 80s when we were Couple buildings on the hill in Belmont, and there were no big towers on, you know, Highway 101 or anything. It was pretty small. We were several hundred employees, not even thousands yet. And I started actually in a group that was building developer tools for the Oracle developers. So lint systems, sort of source controlled systems, things like that. And I loved it. I, I really enjoyed programming and math, but honestly, I had this hankering to talk more directly to customers and hear what they wanted and how they were going to use products. And so my second job at Oracle was actually as a product manager. And we'll talk more about that, I know. But uh, that kind of hit my love for connecting technology with use and really trying to connect those in a meaningful way, both to the customer, what they need and what problems they're trying to solve, and to the engineering team who's building to solve those problems. And that kind of became, in a lot of ways, a route across many things thereafter in my career. And it wasn't until two jobs later, I joined a little startup then called Documentum that most people won't have heard of now (laughs) because it is no more after acquisitions and rebrandings and what have you. But we were the pioneer in enterprise content management back in the day. I was running product management and product marketing because we were small. And as I started doing more with customers, I just found I really loved it and I was good at it. And that kind of started my career more on the go-to-market side of things. And ever since, I've really been in more of the sales, marketing, go-to-market strategy, BD, partnerships, support, success, all the things that are customer-facing in an org. So it's a very much a winding path, not a direct line.
0: It is, but it's also very organic in in terms of how you stumbled upon what you love, right? And it's interesting. I majored in French. I never expected to become a tech CEO. And probably the only place I've used French outside of becoming a certified sommelier and studying a lot of wine from places like Burgundy is in travel. Like it was not really a part of my career plan. It just kind of was something I loved and I followed and ended up in tech, which is fascinating. I actually also ended up in tech through a path in product management. Very similarly loved technology, but really loved more solving business problems with technology. And that's been a common thread for me since. One thing that stood out to me about your your history, and you kind of ended up in these places that you started early on, had a huge impact in them, and then they became really big and well-known. And similarly, you had the opportunity to work with some big names in tech early in your career, including Guy Kawasaki and Mark Benioff. Can you share a little bit of insight on what it was like working with them and what you learned from those experiences?
1: Yeah, I've been incredibly fortunate to work with a lot of really great people. And it, well, the time we're talking about, nobody, I mean, nobody knew who any of these people were, right? None of us encountered, we were all very early in our career. And the way I ended up working for Mark, he was my boss in my second job, my first product management job. And if you've read kind of behind the cloud and some of the early days of Oracle, this was when Mark had the idea that the Macintosh was an emerging platform for business <laughs> and was ordering some of the Oracle products to Mac. And so my product focus was Oracle for fourth dimension, which was Kai Kawasaki's product back then, an early Mac product. And so it was a very interesting time in the sense that working with... A little bit with Larry Ellison in the day, but more with his co-founder, who's long since passed away now, unfortunately, but Bob Miner, and then Mark, and to some extent, Guy. I think what I learned was, honestly, very apt to this podcast name, because we're talking about people who were dreaming of things that many did not think were possible. Using Mac as an enterprise platform in that <laughs> day and age was unheard of. And of course, it took a long time for, I think, it to really emerge as a standard business platform, but it was an early idea. And Mark reached for the stars on it. And that really was inspiring. And I think that was even true working with Bob Miner, the co-founder of Oracle. If Oracle was, even then, even if it was small, was pretty big in the database world. And, uh, you know, still the mainstay database choice of developers. So there's something very, I think, inspiring in that that certainly influenced me later and thinking about taking leaps of faith and reaching for bigger things.
0: Absolutely, and you're alongside pioneers, probably pioneering things yourself along the way in many ways, and just working with people that really became legends. And I think that's really important. If we think about dream makers and making your mark on the industry, but, you know, you've had exposure to a lot of that. You've also, on this winding road, been on over 17 acquisitions, I believe, including Dropbox acquisition of HelloSign, which is, I think. I met you when you were COO at HelloSign and learned a lot from just watching what you were doing there. You've become an acquisitions expert just in this journey. What advice would you give to listeners who are either leading or going through an acquisition or just thinking about that?
1: Oh, gosh, we could do a whole hour just on that topic alone. First of all, acquisitions are very difficult. And, And to say I've been part of 17, mostly on the acquiring side, I've only been acquired twice they certainly did not all succeed. And most acquisitions don't, to be honest, they just don't always come to their best outcome, despite everybody's best intentions and desires. And I think given what I've seen, I boil it down to kind of one crucial thing. There are lots of other things, and I'll give you a short synopsis of those. But I think the biggest thing is once you've made the decision to do the acquisition, it can fail because you move too fast you basically subsume the thing you bought. Now, this may not be true for small aqua hires and the like, but for a sizable acquisition, if you swallow it too quickly, you kind of kill the spirit of the thing you bought and the momentum that was carried by the team that was taking it to market, building it, selling it, et cetera. And so while you certainly want synergies and upside and all the value of bringing two organizations and two product solutions together, if you do it too fast, you risk killing it. On the other end, if you do it too slowly or not at all, and you leave it as kind of a wholly owned subsidiary, which we've seen can work, you're just not going to get the synergies and benefits out of that from kind of a bringing things together point of view. So a lot of it depends on the objective. But again, assuming your objective is to bring something into the family that you're already part of and into the product family that you're building, then you've got to kind of find this Goldilocks zone, I guess, of doing it just at the right speed. And I think we did a pretty good job of that, actually, with HelloSign, because we we kind of planned it in phases where, you know, first year is don't break what you bought, but help where you can. Second, let's start to build joint accountability around the success of this thing and figure out where the integration points are and where the joint one plus one equals three type of value is that we can deliver to customers. And your three is the company can really now own and be accountable for the success of the thing that was purchased. And that worked pretty well because it does take time. For people to understand the intricacies of the customer, the market, the product, the maturity of it, et cetera, et cetera. And then the only other thing I guess I'll say on this is that on the front end, while you're evaluating before you've made the decision to acquire, it's not just about technology at all. It's as much about the team, the culture fit of the two organizations, the architecture of the products and how easy are they to integrate or not, if that's part of the plan. And I'll tell one fun story of an early acquisition that we ultimately didn't do. We were nine steps down a 10-step aisle, if you will, to marriage. And we did a last all-executive meeting of the execs on both sides. It was like a junior high school dance. (laughs) Boys are over there. The girls are over there. They know they're supposed to talk to each other, but they can't figure out how or what to say. It, we just could not connect with each other. And and we, wow. walked. we didn't do the acquisition. We found another company that was maybe second in technology leadership, but much better fit. And because we wanted the people and the expertise to stay. And if you have this weird culture divide, it won't work. So anyway, you have to think kind of holistically about what's going to make a success.
0: I love that you kind of outlined a playbook there with the HelloSign acquisition, and just thinking about don't break what you bought. That's fundamentally it should be how people are thinking about things. And then the one plus one equals three really resonates with me because you acquire to become bigger, better, do something you can't do without it, address a gap. That's pretty amazing, and if you can repeat that playbook, but maybe twist it a little bit based on the companies that are involved in the cultures, and and make it work. So. Let's go back to your career and kind of your first C-suite role, which was at EMC, I believe, right? Yep. When that happened and when you took that role on, did you feel like you were ready for the C-suite? Did you know what you were getting into? Oh,
1: I definitely didn't know what I was getting into. Who are we (laughs) (laughs) getting? But oddly, I did feel ready. (laughs) I got very fortunate for that role because, so at the time I mentioned Documentum got acquired by EMC. That's how we joined the EMC family. And then over the course of a few years after that, we brought a bunch of software acquisitions together under one umbrella. And it became one of the three major divisions of the company. And the role you're referring to is when I took over as CMO for that division. At this point, I think I had been with the documentum business. Granted, now it was a bunch of other things too, but I'd been part of the documentum business for more than 10 years. So I knew the market. I knew the technology. I knew the products. We had done all these acquisitions to complement our product suite. I felt very confident in what I knew of the target customer base and how to address that customer base. I also had a boss that I'd been working with for quite a while who'd been a longtime EMCer, who I just really relished the relationship with. And we're friends to this day respect him tremendously. So he was the president of the division. And so taking that role, I actually felt a tremendous amount of confidence in my knowledge, but also a tremendous amount of support from my boss. And it didn't feel like a risky role. And and keep in mind, this was, you know, I forget what we were doing revenue wise for our division at that point in time, but it was probably about a billion dollars or so. And, uh, It didn't feel kind of the same as maybe like a CMO or COO job of a whole company because there was another level of executive suite that was running EMC, but it certainly did come with a lot of responsibility and reach and authority. And and for those things, I actually was very blessed that I felt lucky, but I definitely didn't understand all of the (laughs) complexities and intricacies that come with a C-level role, which I came to appreciate later for sure.
0: Most of our listeners are either early in their career or women that are trying to think about moving up the ladder. What's some advice that you might give to people that maybe are a little more unsure about their readiness or might be faced with imposter syndrome or, you know, just kind of battling that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for one, I think we have to recognize that imposter syndrome is a natural part of all of us and that it's okay to feel self-doubt. It doesn't mean you aren't capable and it doesn't mean you can't do the job well. It just means you're a little uncomfortable and maybe in an area that's not as familiar. So first I think recognize and accept that that's an okay place to be. I think the theme I mentioned of why I felt comfortable was that I knew my stuff I mean, seriously, like do a lot of research, do a lot of reading, really understand the product, the market, the customer, et cetera. I think that's within your control. And then the other piece I mentioned was I had a very supportive boss. Now it may not be your boss. It may be somebody else, but I think having a mentor that you can look to for advice, for brainstorming, for confessing when you feel like you're out of your depth and you need some guidance and help is crucial. So building a really good support structure around yourself is key. And then I think you also just have to be willing to take a little bit of a risk to say, look, if I'm going to grow, and this is true with anything, you do yeah. everything for the first time at some point in your life. So be willing to take a step and, and just know that you've got supporting hands to hold on to as you do it, and you will learn and be better and bigger for it.
0: I love that advice. And I actually think even your second piece of advice about having a mentor or a boss or a manager that supports you is so important because, and whether it's going into a C-suite role or just your first tough role or challenging role. It's everything. I would leave a ton of compensation on the table to go work for somebody that I was going to learn more from and that I knew I would have the support room. That's advice we should always be giving to people that are earlier in their careers. I think people don't
1: really contemplate that there's an alternative besides more money. And I actually think the payoff, it sounds like you and I are very similar in this, like the payoff comes later when You've proven yourself over and over again. And part of proving yourself is having the support to get you there. And so uh, making near-term trade-offs for long-term gains is not a bad strategy.
0: 100%. People that will invest their time in you and help you grow, right? So interestingly, the next topic is when you chose to join HelloSign. And before that, you spoke with 28 companies. (laughs) That's a lot of diligence to do before choosing a path forward. So tell us about why that was so important.
1: I give this talk a lot, actually, to people who are thinking of leaving their current company and looking for something new. Because moving within a company is a little easier, right? The players are known, the environment's known, the culture's known, etc. But changing companies is a bigger deal. And if you look back on my career, you pointed it out earlier, I've joined companies when they've been relatively small and then helped them through their scale-up phase and successful exit and then kind of go do it again, And part of that was certainly luck, but part of it was choosing wisely. And I think I've always been very diligent in choosing the companies I work for. And the biggest mistake I see people make when they're looking for a new job at a new company is they only respond to inbound, meaning they heard from a recruiter. They got an invitation to interview from somebody they know at a company that maybe they worked with them before or something like that. And they only take those that happen to find them. And I think that's such a mistake Because seeing such a small sliver of what's available on the market. And how do you know that those three or four things that happen to come your way, that one of them is the absolute best option out there? You don't until you go look. And so for me, I wanted to kind of cast a wide net and go find something that felt just like the perfect next step for me. It's not to say I didn't have criteria, I absolutely had criteria. And in fact, I'll tell you what my five criteria were. One, I discovered after many years in the database world and my time at EMC, that I don't care about things deep in the infrastructure. I care about things that users touch. Two, so it needed to be in that category. I only do B2B software. That's what I know. It's where my expertise is. So that's two. Three, it needed to be in San Francisco because I had commuted every single other job in my career and I was living in the city and I didn't want to commute anymore. <laughs> four it had to be a really exciting market opportunity that I could get excited about. If I'm not excited about it, I won't do my best work. And so it needed to be something that really made me passionate. Don't care if it's the number one player, sometimes prefer it's the number two player. Cause then you kind of get to play the underdog and go, you know, beat the leader, which is fun. And then five is the culture and the team just had to be like, rock solid, great people. You talked about being a CEO where of a company where you can be a good human being. That matters tremendously to me. I want to be me and I want to care the way I care about people and people's careers. And I'm an empath by nature. I want to be able to show emotion and um, I need to be with people who relish that and where that's not a drawback. And so uh, those were my five. And so I talked to 28 companies and ruled out a bunch that kind of I tested the boundaries of my criteria, talking to companies too small, too big in database, whatever, and came back to that sweet spot. And when I met the founders of HelloSign, it was just tick, 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 tick. And I loved the founders. And we just, uh, yeah, it was the best decision I made.
0: It's so cool how that methodology is so precise and you know yourself so well that you're able to Outline it, and then I always talk about the importance of writing things down and manifesting it. You've like memorized your your manifest for this role, and it's just um, it's. I think it's just so important, and I don't think people do that enough. So that's super super great advice. I think it kind of leads into just thinking about leadership and philosophy. And for me, my leadership philosophy has always been to equip my team and then just kind of get out of their way. I'm an unblocker and then a rallier. You mentioned this yourself. You want to do your best work. That's like the whole mantra. Like if my team has the capability to do their best work, then I've done my part. It's so
1: obvious that that's who you are. I know your people treasure that in you. And I just think that's such a true reflection of of you.
0: It's interesting because that comes pretty naturally to me, probably because I don't know how to do everything. So I find smart people that do. (laughs) And then it really is about empowering them, right? And that part for some people is really hard. For me, it's like, it's obvious and natural. And I think that's important. And there's pros and cons to all types of philosophies. But I'm just curious, what stands out to you as your leadership philosophy and kind of how you practice leadership? It's not that
1: different from yours in a way. I mean, I think my my goal is always to hire people who are better at the thing I'm hiring them for than I am. Because ultimately, if you think about you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, if you hire the people who are great at what they do and are better experts in their disciplines than you or I are, that adds up to a better whole. And flip it, right? It's the what is it? A's, higher A's and B's, higher C's, I think is the phrase as it goes. And so if you hire people that are less good at something than you are, then you're compromising for what reason? For self-glorification, I guess. I don't know. It just never made sense to me. I'd much rather hire the experts. And then I learn. As much as I get to teach yeah. and develop, I also learn. And then everybody's learning. And that just makes for a wonderful work environment. So I think it's very, very akin to your philosophy is you know how do you hire the best possible people and then let them go do
0: their best work? It lifts everybody, right? Yourself included. Absolutely. Okay. I know when you were talking about doing this, you made, the, you made the leap to the BC side of things. So just talk a little bit about your role at in Insight. I'm obviously a big fan of Insight. Insight led my A and my B, and one of the Insight partners is on my board, and I've just had such a great experience with the firm. What's your role there? And as an operating partner, what do you bring to the table? I know a lot of that, but share with our listeners.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's, it's kind of an interesting role in a way. because So how this all happened was that I was in my post-acquisition time with Dropbox. And as I mentioned, kind of a three-year journey to really make sure that the company could take HelloSign over and keep it growing and successful. And I knew that I was going to leave after that three-year period. There just wasn't kind of another good fit role at Dropbox that made sense and was feeling like... I can't escape the content world to save my life <laughs> between 15 years at total at Documentum and then Box and then Dropbox after HelloSign and just enough content already. But uh, I was thinking about what next and it was either do the same thing again, go to another startup, help it grow and scale, bring it to exit and then move on. This time I would think probably as a CEO, or I was on two boards, a formal advisor to two companies had invested in a couple funds. My husband, and my angel invested in a company maybe just do more of that and have a little bit more flexibility in my lifestyle. And I was leaning toward the latter when Insight found me, but was no way sure. This is like a year and a half ago now. And Insight found me through a recruiter, actually. And they were looking to bring on an operating partner slash board partner. And I was like, I don't really know what that is. Like, what does that mean? And (laughs) the philosophy makes so much sense that, you know, what are investors great at? They're amazing at spotting opportunities to invest, companies that show all the promise of potentially growing and scaling, and that would benefit by growing faster and an infusion of both cash and help from, from an investor. And Insight does a phenomenal job at that. But if they also have people like you or me, who've been operators for a few decades, who sat in the chair, made the decisions, lived with the trade-offs, thought through the implications, you know, all of that stuff, in theory, we should be able to give better on the ground in the weeds advice of how to think about things, how to plan and prioritize, how to think about trade-offs and decisions and so forth in strategic and tactical areas. And in theory, if that's true, that we can give better advice, then the company ultimately reaches better outcomes. And that's a win for everyone. And so that's my job is to sit on as many boards in the portfolio as I have capacity for and, and help the executive team and the founding team find their way to their best potential outcomes, which is just a load of fun. And I get the side benefit of I work as part of an investing team, even though I'm not an investing partner. Um, and so I get visibility to learn a whole bunch of things that I would never have known otherwise about how the investing community works and how the business model works. So it's a who knew, you know, this far in my career, I'd be in a whole new industry, learning something new all over again, but leveraging all of my past learnings and successes. So it's, it's, a, it's a big win.
0: It's actually like a pretty remarkable journey to have gone through like all the learnings that you've had and then to land somewhere that you can help CEOs like me that are maybe earlier stage and trying to figure out how to, how to scale up or continue to scale further. I think it's awesome. I'd, I'd love to hear from your perspective, everything that you've learned as an operator and then now as kind of on the VC side of the world, what are some signs that, you know, a company is moving from a startup to a scale up?
1: Great question. I mean, you know, I hate to use tried and true terminology, but in truth, it really is a lot about product market fit. First, there has to be ample opportunity in the market that you're solving a real problem that people have and that they're willing to pay for a solution to solve. I mean, that is a number one. You know, the build it, they will come theory is just not (laughs) software at all. So there's that. You have to have a real problem that you're solving. And then I think you have to solve it in a way that makes you maybe not the chosen provider, but one of the few. You're differentiated in some way and you solve the problem beautifully, gracefully, elegantly, whatever, completely, thoroughly, whatever it is, uh, scalably. And then I think the third is the team. And I feel like the team has to have grit. I think they have to have faith, persistence, Um, Willingness to just really throw down to make this work because there will be obstacles. I mean, we've seen this crazy period of kind of uninhibited growth for now many, 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 many years. And suddenly we're faced with a market downturn and pull back a little bit. And so, you know, these kinds of things happen cyclically, they will happen again. And so, figuring out how to weather that storm and come out for the better on the other side really takes a lot of that grit and kind of can do it attitude. And I think that has a lot to do with a company's success. So opportunity, metrics, and grit, I think, are the three big things I look for.
0: I love it. And as women in this space, we've often been one among many. And we know that just a very small percentage of fundraising dollars goes to women-led companies. Do you have any fundraising advice for female founders?
1: Well, since I'm not an investing partner, I don't do as much of this as probably some of my peers do, who would probably have better advice than I do at this stage. I've only been with Insight for six months or so, but I think maybe just leveraging some advice about how to be a successful executive woman in the minority is maybe in some ways not that different, which is that I think you can't focus and highlight the fact that you're unusual being a woman at your level or in your role. To me, it's about doing great work, building a great company, showing that why is a woman any different? Like we're just as capable of producing amazing results. And and some of the numbers would tell you better at producing some amazing results. That's the right thing to focus on. It's not about being a woman per se, right? And maybe the one thing I would say is that I think we as women naturally have a more empathic nature and maybe therefore can better understand our audience, just intuitively. And that's certainly not true across the board, but I think in general, it's somewhat true. So maybe we can read the room better and tailor our pitches to be a little bit more in tune with what the room is looking for rather than just what we feel we ought to be pitching. So we may have an inherent advantage
0: there. Play to our superpowers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: So part of your philosophy seems to be to take what you know and pay it forward. And I know this because you've done that for me. I've come to you with random questions and you've given me great advice over the years. And you're a board member of several companies like Paycor. Just tell us a little bit about your first board role and, and kind of how you landed that. And for other people that are looking for those types of opportunities, how do they look for those?
1: So first of all, I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like there are so many capable, experienced women who would be an asset to any board of directors. And obviously, women have been in the minority on board seats for a long time, but things are changing. We see laws like what California has about having to have women and minorities on their board in order to go public and so forth. I think those are helpful. But the trick, oddly, it, it I guess it's like some other things in that getting the first one is the hardest And then once you have a board seat, people go, oh, she's an experienced board member. I can (laughs) go hire her for this other board. So the first one is the hardest. And what I would say, I think there's a little bit of a myth that starting with a nonprofit board will give you a leg up into getting a board seat in the for-profit commercial world. And I don't actually think that's true. The board work on a nonprofit is just very, very different. It's mostly about fundraising and less about fiduciary responsibility and et cetera, et cetera. The focus areas are just quite different. So when I just say there's wonderful, wonderful reasons to be on a nonprofit board, I just don't look at it as a stepping stone to getting on the for-profit board. I think the trick is mostly about getting the word out. So not unlike the talking to 28 companies, casting a wide net to find the one that was perfect for me, it's casting a wide net in the sense of letting people know who are in a position to potentially recommend you that you're actively looking for a board seat. I would certainly start with a private board where the risks are lower, the, the conversation is a lot freer, There's you can get a lot more involved in the strategic planning and direction of the company, things like that. So I would look for a private board first, get the word out to people like recruiters, to people who are in executive roles at other companies, to other people you know who are on boards particularly those that are of similar profile to you because if somebody goes to them for a board seat and they're fully they're fully utilized they don't have room to take on another board seat you want them to recommend you so if you can make known to people who are in a position to potentially recommend you i i think that is the trick and be persistent it'll take like a year or two to get that first one often and then oddly after that it gets a lot easier
0: and probably in your position It actually gets, in some ways, harder because then you have to start being more selective about what you get involved in. (laughs) How do you start to choose what you say yes to and what you say no to in that situation?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, too. I think, well, put it this way, a board's responsibility is, I mean, one is to make sure that the company spends their money appropriately that they're not doing anything they shouldn't be doing financially, legally, or otherwise, and that you got the right CEO in the seat. I mean, at the end of the day, those are kind of like the primary focuses of the board. And then everything else is about helping and guiding and bringing resources to bear and making connections and all the things that you mentioned at the beginning of this. So imagine a scenario where the board has come to the conclusion that they don't have the right CEO in the seat. That's a really hard thing to go through. It's a hard thing to take a company through. A lot of companies have been going through really tough times lately with just you know what's happening in the market conditions and having to replan and kind of rein in the budgets and, and hold on to cash because we're not in a good fundraising environment right now. So those are tough times. And so I think much like choosing an operating job where you want to be at a company where you really, really value the people you work with and you feel like you can weather any storm with them, lock arms, take that hill, you know, weather the storm, whatever. It's not different for a board. You want to make sure that the board, they're people you trust, that you respect, that you think have high integrity, that have maybe not the same values in every way you do, but at least common enough that if you're in that challenging situation, you can find a way through it together. So I think it's finding, you know, companies where A, your expertise is helpful. That's kind of your whole point of being on the board. And two, that it's a group you want to learn from and be associated with and work with, and that you feel like you can get through the tough times with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Having just gone through a pandemic and trying to figure out what that meant for, you know, all of our companies, those board members that like really stood up and were in the bunker with you or weathering the storm with you are the ones that you want in good times and bad, which is super important. When you think about helping founders or operators or leaders, think about the back to your journey, a mentor that maybe has helped you along your career journey. And maybe share some advice that they've given you.
1: I think maybe the most important is it's okay to not know. It's okay not to know everything, especially as C-level leaders. I feel like there's a lot of expectation, even from your own employees, that you know we, you're the CEO. You must know everything now, right? Like you know everything. I know everything. Yeah, everything obviously that's not true. I mean, nobody does. And we talked about hiring people that know more than we do in their respective expertise areas, because it's beneficial for the company and for us as individuals and everything else. So I think you really have to be comfortable with saying, I don't know how to do this, or I don't understand this, or I need a little help here. And it can actually make you a lot stronger. It makes you far more trustable and approachable by your team which is not to say you should go around and be in a job where you know nothing. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. But you know, you get put in a job because you know a whole lot, but you don't know everything. And it's, it, it's okay to not know everything and to ask for help. And I think that is something I also really was underscored for me by the founder of HelloSign, who was really humble and very willing to say in front of the company, this isn't my area of expertise. I don't know this. So we're going to bring so-and-so in to help us out. And I just think that shows strength.
0: It totally does. I couldn't agree more. And it shows real leadership too, to be able to ask for help and to be able to admit that you don't know everything and that you're willing to take the help you need to get from point A to point B. I think that's incredible. Great advice. Okay, time to move into rapid fire. These are the same few questions I ask every guest at the end of every episode. And I'm gonna start with my favorite question, which is what is your wake-up song?
1: (laughs) I was thinking a lot about this of what song do I want to wake up to every day? And the one I ended up landing on was Here Comes the Sun by The Beatles. <laughs> because, well, first of all, it's morning and I'm a morning person. I love waking up in the morning and I I, I have the sheerest possible curtains on my windows because I like to wake up in <laughs> the light. And so uh, Here Comes the Sun, very apropos, but I also love The Beatles and it's so upbeat and happy. Like I always want to start my day on a positive note. So I feel like that song kind of ticks all the boxes.
0: That's a really great one to add to the playlist. I love it. If a younger version of you, 19 year old wit said, what should I read or listen to today? What would you say? I
1: think my answer here is to just be voracious, read, watch, listen to everything, a variety, fiction, nonfiction, history, and biographies, movies, popular magazines, opinion pieces, like, I feel like I, I like to be a sponge and to absorb information from a lot of places. And by doing that, I feel like it just, it gives inspiration to, to be more adventurous, to be more daring. I think it also teaches empathy. It opens your mind. You'll learn yeah. things you didn't think you would learn. So I don't, my, my best advice is to take in a wide sample.
0: I love it. Yeah. The curiosity that comes with that is it's everything that formulates who you become. It's it's awesome. Can you recommend a wine?
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So it's a fun story, actually, when I was in my, I guess, mid twenties and I knew a decent amount about wine, but not like a ton about wine. And I've always liked great food. And I went to a winemaker's dinner on the peninsula and it was co-held by a restaurant and the restaurant owner, Anna Sommelier. And the welcome glass, when I came in, I took one sip and was just like, oh my God, what is this? It just had this beautiful rounded sweetness. It was clearly a Chardonnay and it just coated my tongue beautifully. It was just, and then it would just vanish on the finish. And I was like, oh my God, what is this wine? And it was a Montreux, and it, called to mind a story of my little cousin when he was about two or three having his first taste of cotton candy. Think of cotton candy. It's really sweet and present on your tongue. And then it just, poof it's just gone. And it leaves you with this kind of aura of sweetness behind. And I felt like the magic of Montrachet is like that poof. And it just leaves you with this aura of beauty in your mouth. And so uh, I'm a huge fan of Montrachet wines.
0: That's an amazing story. Montrachet is also Burgundian. We're having Pinot Noir, which is red burgundy and Montrachet, which is white burgundy made from Chardonnay, which is amazing. What's the next thing that our listeners should do to help them become dream makers?
1: This will be kind of thematically consistent with a lot of the things we've talked about today, but I just want to challenge people to go, just go do something new. It can be big, it can be small, it doesn't matter. If you've never had a Nuit Saint-Georges or a Montrachet, go get one, try it. If you've never written a blog post, do that. If you've never reached out to someone who you admire, who has skills that you think could be helpful and maybe pick their brain, reach out to someone. Most people don't say no. I just want to encourage people to step outside the norm a little bit. And somehow that puts you in a really good momentum to keep dreaming bigger.
0: That was amazing with... A true dream maker. Thank you again for being a part of this and for sharing this glass of wine with me. It's just such a pleasure to have you here.
1: Likewise, always love talking with you, Neha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Cheers to you. Cheers.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Dream Makers podcast. You can reach out to me, Neha Sampat, on Twitter at NehaSF, that's N-E-H-A-S-F, with your comments, suggestions, your favorite wake up song, wine, or Dreammaker woman to know. Please also leave a review and subscribe to Dreammakers wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, keep dreaming big, building up, and being a good human.